No baller. I am Chris Rawl, and it is Monday, May 31st. Happy Memorial Day. On today's show, the Utah Jazz survived Game 3 in Memphis with awesome offense and not-so-great defense. Before we get to that, I have a request of you, the listener and the viewer. If you enjoy this show and you think there are people in your life who would feel the same way, please share it with them. Get them to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, get them to sign up via email on thebeehive.com for the videos that we put out. It would be a great help to me. It would be a great help to my production team, Weston and Kelly. And we would love you. We would give you a great big hug if we ever see you in real life. <laughs> um, okay, on to sports and today's gambling tidbit. Why gambling should be legal in Utah. Game three, Utah-Memphis on Saturday night. I didn't want to bet the game itself. I didn't want to bet the total. So I went into the weeds and I said, I'm going to find a nice prop bet. I'm going to enjoy myself by betting on that. So I honed in on Mike Conley, under eight and a half assists, which I felt good about. And I felt good about it for the vast majority of the game until there are about three minutes to go. And it's a very tight affair. And Mike Conley is sitting on eight assists. One more puts him over and I lose my bet. If he stays there, then I win my bet. So now I'm torn emotionally because I'm wanting the Jazz to win. But every time Mike Conley has the ball, I'm saying, I need you to either score it or pass to make another pass so you don't get an assist. Very complex rooting experience uh, where you're rooting for the player to do well, but there's one tiny category that you need them to not do. And unfortunately with Conley, it's the one category that he's probably the best at. Luckily for me, the Jazz win. Conley stays on eight assists. And it gives us a great reminder of why gambling should be legal in Utah because it will turn the closing moments of a 10-point win into the most intense portion of the entire basketball game. And now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. The Utah Jazz defeated the Memphis Grizzlies 121-111 to on Saturday night in Game 3. They now lead their first-round playoff series 2-1, to uh, with Game 4 taking place tonight in Memphis. And it was the exact type of game you need to win uh, in order to be taken seriously as a playoff team, and hopefully if you pile up enough of them as a championship contender, because it was a game that centered on adversity. It was smooth sailing for the Jazz through three quarters, uh, with the exception of some sloppy turnovers in the second quarter. The Jazz played the first half exactly how the Utah Jazz wanted to play basketball. They dictated the terms of play. Their offense was free-flowing. There was tons of space. They shot the hell out of the three-point shot. They played reasonable defense. Uh, And that's exactly what the Jazz want. Those are the two things more than anything they want to do. Create space and shoot threes on offense and limit what you can do offensively. A lot of that stemmed from what Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell were doing as a combination, which I'm going to get into. Uh, But the Jazz coming out of halftime, and even going into the fourth quarter, they sat there saying, this is exactly what we want to do. And then the fourth quarter begins, and Memphis goes on a run. Next thing you know, a game that the Jazz had been 
handling for three and a half quarters was now a tie game. Uh, the second half turned into the last six minutes of a dogfight. That's what we know playoff basketball to be. That's the adversity that comes within the playoffs. It's a 1-1 series. You go on the road. It's against a team you're favored against. You've been handling them. The next thing you know, it's six minutes left, and you're in a tie game. And you go, how did we get to this point? And the teams who we take seriously, the teams who we, we look at and say, this is a real championship contender, they respond accordingly in those situations. They don't go, oh my gosh, uh, well, what's going to happen? And they turtle up, and the next thing you know, they're down 2-1 in the series. They buckle down, and they say, okay, not ideal that we're now tied in a game that we've controlled, but what do we need to do moving forward in order to win this game? So there were two things that really stood out to me from the Jazz perspective that I loved, and there was one thing that really stands out that I do not like, and those are the things we're going to discuss today because they're notable within Game 3, and they're notable to monitor moving forward for the Jazz within this series and hopefully for them in later playoff series. The first thing... Uh, that really, really stood out in a positive way. Those last six minutes, the Jazz relied heavily upon the combination of Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell. The call it a star guard combination, call it whatever you want, that's who the Jazz fell back on when adversity struck. They said, you guys are the two that really need to carry us to the finish line. Uh, and they were both superb. Mike Conley finishes the game with 27 points, 8 assists, 6 rebounds. He's 7 for 10 from 3-point land. Fantastic stat line. Donovan Mitchell, 29 points, 5 assists. He's 9 for 11 from the free throw line. So you see high-volume scoring from both, high-level creation from both, and you see the scoring coming in different ways. Uh, Conley from the 3-point arc, 7 threes. That's as much as you can ask for from the Jazz. And Mitchell getting to the rim which he does really, really well. He's the best player on the roster at stressing a defense from the interior, getting there and either scoring or forcing them to foul. And that combination in unison is really tough for a defense to account for because you have to guard the entire floor. That's where the space portion of the Jazz offense comes from. These two continually attacking in pick and rolls or sometimes with Mitchell more in isolation. They create shots for themselves. They create shots for, them other, for others. And they really create space for the entire offense to flourish. So the final six minutes of that game, we get down to the nitty-gritty, playoff-style uh, dogfight. And this is where having a combination like this becomes very advantageous. Because rather than giving it to one person and saying, the defense knows that it's coming and you're just going to have to score in isolation and, and hopefully you can do this at a reasonable clip, the Jazz have different things they can go to within crunch time. Uh, and we saw that in the final six minutes. Conley drills a huge three, uh, and he follows that up with a very tough floater. He sets up Gobert for an alley-oop dunk off a great feed, and then he sets up Gobert for an and one on the baseline with a quick. He catches it in the corner and just flashes it down low to Gobert. It's all the stuff we love from Conley. Great three-point shooter, very cerebral, smart basketball player who understands sometimes I need to hit this floater. Other times I need to flip it up to Gobert and he's going to dunk it on an alley-oop. And other times my value is as simple as Mitchell has created space. He flashes it to me. And rather than waiting and letting the defense get set, it's one quick pass to Gobert. He's getting fouled. He's scoring. And that's how we're going to create offense. Conley did that the entire game. He did that down the stretch. That's what the Jazz wanted when they acquired Mike Conley. 
That's what he's given them immensely in game two and three when he's played about as good of a two-game stretch as he's played in a Jazz uniform. Donovan Mitchell, he is there in the final six minutes alongside Conley. And he's bringing the exact same style of scoring and creation. He drills an acrobatic and one where he gets clubbed and still finishes through the contact. He drills an enormous three to put the Jazz up by four when things had really, really tightened up. And he draws a foul on a three-point attempt that fouls Dylan Brooks out of the game and gets Mitchell three free throws uh, and really kind of puts the icing on the cake for the Jazz. Down the stretch of this game, as I was watching it, and you have that sinking feeling that uh, when you're rooting for a team, you get. When you watch them control the game, and then suddenly it's tied, and you go, oh no, it's just going to be one of those nights. And you start thinking all of the negative thoughts that come with that viewing experience. It really stood out how measured the Jazz were in their offensive approach, uh, and how reliant they were on Conley and Mitchell in unison, not one necessarily over the other, and how well that combination flourished together and really created high leverage scoring opportunities for both them and their teammates in the final six minutes of a tight game. This is why the Jazz were so high on getting Mike Conley. Uh, Because in the past, it's been a struggle for the Jazz to create crunch time offense because it was roll the ball to Mitchell and you got to do everything. You got to score, you got to create, and the defense knows that's coming. That's really hard within a playoff series when a defense is game planning and scouting you and knowing exactly the spots that one player wants to get to and what they want to do. That's really, really hard. So the Jazz acquire Conley, and last season that doesn't come to fruition as we know. He plays in the Denver series, but he's just not the version of Conley that we've seen in years past and in this year. Now we're seeing the best version of that guard combination uh, and why it makes it so hard for an opposing defense to choke out an offense built on two quality options because you can surround them with Gobert screening and rolling and catching those lobs from Conley or making himself available off of skip passes and getting an and one. And then you have two other shooters on the floor uh, in whatever variety you want. You can put Bogdanovich out there. You can put Ingles out there. You can put Clarkson out there. You can put George Ning out there. It doesn't matter. The point is you have a crunch time offense that is good. And also as long as everybody is healthy and Mitchell continues to get healthier is sustainable. So this brings me to the second part of the game that really stood out. And it's the thing that I talk about after every single game. It's the Jazz three-point shooting. It's always the great uh, teeter-totter scenario. Sometimes the weight goes down, sometimes the weight goes up. And hopefully the Jazz are shooting better from three-point range than not. And that means they will win more games than not within the playoffs. That plays out in game three. They go 19 for 43. Their season average, they go 17 for 43. So tiny blip above their season average when they were one of the best three-point shooting teams in the NBA. You see that and you go, okay, the, the Jazz on nights where they shoot at least their average from the regular season or better, they're going to have a very, very, very good chance of winning. They go seven for 15 in the first quarter. This is when they're playing awesome offense and it looks for a stretch like they're getting ready to run Memphis out of the gym. Mitchell has four assists within that quarter uh, and it really struck me watching the game how much space that dude creates on the court. Uh, I think we discount sometimes just the simple space that's created by somebody who is incredibly explosive with the ball in their hands. Mitchell, we know he's a great scorer. We know he's turning into a much better passer than he's been in the past. 
Uh, and the thing that isn't accounted for in the box score is the actual physical space that just him having the ball and being aggressive with it creates for the offense. In the first quarter, that's all I was seeing. He would get to the middle, uh, and, and it just seemed like anybody anywhere was wide open. And sometimes that meant Mitchell was kicking it to a wide open three and they were canning it. And sometimes it meant he was kicking it to somebody and they'd make one more pass and that person was wide open. But you saw the best version of the Jazz offense in that quarter. Uh, in the version of the Jazz offense that is reliant upon Mitchell and Conley to get to the key, to create space out of the pick and roll. And the Jazz are really going to have an easy time getting quality looks when that's happening. Uh, they go 11 for 25 in the first half from three. Royce O'Neal plays a big part in that. He drills four threes in the first half off of a lot of those looks that I'm talking about created from Mitchell and Conley in the spacing that the Jazz had. Uh, Conley himself drills four threes in the first half, finishes with seven, like I said. It was really high-level shooting from the Jazz, and it came from different areas. Uh, Mitchell and Bogdanovich, they helped to weather the storm in the third quarter with threes of their own. Uh, And you see that depth that I talked about after game two when the Jazz had seven players in double figures. Depth applies to volume scoring, as we saw in game two, and it applies to how they attack you from three-point land, as we saw in game three. You get those people rolling from three-point land. Uh, you get George Yang contributing there. Uh, Clarkson was cold, but sooner or later, he's going to come around. Joe Ingles didn't do a lot, but sooner or later, he's going to come around. You begin to see this version of the Jazz offense that is different from years past, and that if you're the Jazz, you look at and say, okay. No matter what else happens in these playoffs, we have some question marks elsewhere, as I'm going to get to here in a second. But worst case scenario, we have this offense that we can rely upon. And we know that we can create looks throughout the course of a game. And we know that in crunch time, when defenses tighten up and the game slows down, we still can create really high leverage looks for ourselves and for our teammates. That's what we're seeing through the last two games with the Jazz. So... This is all the positives, uh, and it's something that I've loved through game two and game three. And if you're the Jazz, you're looking optimistically at how you're playing in that specific area as to how it translates to the rest of the series, how it translates to the playoffs moving forward. So there's an enormous problem that the Jazz are currently facing that we have three games built up within this playoff series that are speaking to this problem. Uh, And also years past, uh, the Jazz performances within certain playoff series and games, it it speaks to this problem. Uh, It's the Jazz defensively. And this idea that the Jazz are somewhat of a paper tiger, they're great in the regular season on defense, and they're not that in the playoffs. That's what we've heard in the past. Uh, and that's what we are seeing through three games against Memphis. So this is the bat. Uh, this is something to monitor. This is something to be really aware of if you're the Utah Jazz when you look in the mirror and say, how do we do better in these areas to win this series and to try and win series against better teams later on in the playoffs? So we start with John Morant and Dylan Brooks against the Jazz interior defense, uh, something that the Jazz have struggled with greatly. We know that the Grizzlies average 56 points per game in the paint. Best team in the NBA in the regular season at getting into that area and scoring. Coming into the series, I was confident in the Jazz' ability to somewhat neutralize this because the Jazz play defense in a way that, hey, you want to come into the paint? Great. We have Gobert there, uh, and we can force feed you to him 
and his numbers show he's going to make you shoot at a lower percentage than you're used to because he's always there affecting play. And this hasn't been the case through three games. Again, for the third straight game, uh, the Grizzlies outscore the Jazz in the paint, 54 to 34 in game three. Dylan Brooks has 18 points there uh, to go along with 27 total points. John Morant has 16 points in the paint to go along with 28 points total. This is on top of game one, where the Grizzlies outscored the Jazz 62 to 42 in the paint, and on top of game two, 62 to 58 Memphis advantage in the paint. So we have three games, and in those three games, the Grizzlies have scored 62, 62, and 54 points in the paint. Uh, if you average those out, that's higher than what they averaged in the regular season when they were the best team in the NBA at scoring in the paint. John Morant himself, 22 points in the paint in game one, 20 points in the paint in game two. Anybody who's watching those games and rooting for the Jazz, you know the frustration that has come with that. That it seems like the Jazz perimeter defense, it's a bunch of turnstiles, and they're standing there and watching as Morant blows by him, and as Dylan Brooks, who is not anywhere near the athletic specimen that Morant is, is blowing by them. It's creating this really frustrating uh, experience where those guys are getting to the rim continually and through an array of floaters and just really uh, strong finishes at the rim, they're scoring continually at a high percentage. And it seems like the Jazz do not possess the capacity to stop them from doing that. We have three games now built up of Memphis doing this over and over, relentlessly attacking the paint and the Jazz being unable to stop them from doing that thing. So now I look a little bigger picture because I go, this is a problem, but what does this mean? Uh, Is this feeding more into the narrative of the Jazz? Their playoff defense is not what it is in the regular season because they're just a different style of defense in the playoffs than they are in the regular season. So I go a little bit deeper into the numbers and I go, okay, how is Memphis performing as an offense? relative to what the Jazz are defensively. So in the regular season, the Utah Jazz defensive rating, this is points allowed per 100 possessions. So it takes out pace. It's strictly just a number based upon 100 possessions. The Jazz defensive rating is 108.3, which was fourth in the NBA. So per 100 possessions, they allow 108 points. Okay, Fourth best in the regular season, one of the top four defenses in basketball. Memphis Grizzlies offense, their offensive rating, how many points they score per 100 possessions was 112 even. That was good for 15th in the NBA. Dead even uh, average offense, 15th out of 30 teams in the NBA. So not a very good offense, okay? And the Jazz, one of the best defenses in the regular season. So you take that into the playoffs and you expect the Jazz to be able to have the advantage within that matchup. And yet, Memphis in game one, their offensive rating is 116.5. In game two, it's 128.1. In game three, it's 114.9. To contextualize those numbers, 118 is the best offense in the league, okay? The Brooklyn Nets. And 114 or above, that's a top 10 NBA offense in the league. So now we're seeing a clearer picture of what's going on. The Grizzlies in their worst game through three have scored at the rate of a top 10 NBA offense. And this Grizzlies team, an average regular season offense against one of the best regular season defenses, that paints an alarming picture for Utah. 
because they've had three consecutive games of genuine success, performing at great, great, great level. Uh, And the Jazz, a team that we thought was, well, not that we thought, a team that really was good defensively in the regular season, they have not been that through three games. So Utah's continually fighting this battle to prove that, no, 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 this narrative about our regular season defense versus the playoff defense, it's not true. Uh, We can still play high-level defense in a way that is somewhat synonymous with what we do in the regular season. Uh, In these three games, they're not helping because you just rewind to last year against Denver and you had the Nuggets putting them in the blender uh, through seven games. Their average for that series was just under 120 offensive rating, which again, that would make them the best offense in the NBA if you just had that. And that's including two incredible stinkers that Denver laid in that series. Uh, game seven, rock fight, and another game earlier in the season or earlier in the series when they scored 95 points and got blown out of the, the, the gymnasium. It's starting to build up. And it's starting to be alarming that the Jazz are having this much problem right now against an offense that is not actually that good. Uh, and yet they're having this level of success. So what does it mean for the rest of the series? Uh, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to monitor moving forward within this series because I keep waiting for the Jazz to stop Morant and Brooks from getting into the key, and that hasn't happened. And it's getting to the point where I go, mm, is this just something the Jazz acknowledge we can't really do? And they say, you know what? That sucks. Uh, we, we're going to still try as hard as we can to prevent them from getting into the key. We know they're going to get theirs. Uh, we, it just can't be 80 points in the paint. And we know that our offense is humming at such a level right now that we will outweigh what they do. Our three-point shooting, that's a mathematical advantage. Uh, Conley and Mitchell, especially as Mitchell gets healthier, these guys are getting into the key at will and they're creating wide open looks for others or hitting floaters or hitting at the rim. And our offense is just, it was better in the regular season by Memphis or over Memphis by leaps and bounds. And it's been better in this series by leaps and bounds. And we trust in our offense to just win regardless of what our defense does. That might be what Utah says. And that probably is true. Memphis has shown no ability whatsoever to stop Utah in this series, especially when Mitchell has come back. Uh, They look lost on the defensive end, and Utah's offense is putting them in the blender. And it seems like that will continue because Utah is one of the best offenses in basketball, and Memphis doesn't really have the personnel to stop them from doing what they want to do. So if you say, all right, uh, just our offense will outweigh theirs. It's that simple. Now we're on to the next round. What are we worrying about now? This is where an issue like this really, really becomes magnified because you're talking about one of the worst offenses in the playoffs that the Jazz are playing, 15th rated offense in the regular season in Memphis. And that's not going to be the case moving forward. You're going to be playing against the very best offenses in basketball. This next round, you're going to be playing Dallas or you're going to be playing the Clippers. Uh, two of the very best offenses in basketball. I believe the Clippers were a top three offense via net rating and the Mavericks were top nine. And they have incredibly gifted offensive players that will stress the Jazz even more so than what John Morant, who's an incredible up-and-coming star, is doing, but still has noticeable flaws in his game. He struggles shooting from the perimeter. And Dylan Brooks, who I don't even know where he ranks on the on the good NBA player scale. I'm not even sure if he's on it. It just kind of seems like 
he's having this great three-game stretch against the Jazz, and they're powerless to stop him, and it's alarming because it's Dylan Brooks. And if you prorate that and say, well, what happens when that's Kawhi Leonard, or that's Paul George, or that's Luka Doncic, that's a really hard question to answer if you're the Utah Jazz. And it puts a little bit of a dent into that hope that I was talking about if you're Utah and you're looking for optimism and you're looking for reasons you can win and advance and be a championship contender. The optimism is our defense or our offense is better than it's ever been. And no matter what, we're trusting that this offense can blow the doors off of teams and it will outweigh any of these playoff failings that we're having on defense. The, the idea that this Mitchell and Conley combination, when it's healthy, it's damn hard to stop. And when it's surrounded with three-point shooting, we can overcome any defensive deficiencies that we're currently exhibiting. That's the optimistic side. The pessimistic side is sooner or later, this style of defense that the Jazz are playing through three games and this style of defense that the Jazz showed in last year's series against the Denver Nuggets, that's going to be a problem because the Clippers and the Mavericks They are going to obliterate you if you continually play like you're playing right now against Memphis. So this is the good and the bad. This is the stuff that I've really, really uh, honed in on through three games of the Memphis series. Uh, It's what creates such a compelling matchup tonight in game four. The Jazz are five-point favorites again, uh, which speaks to should be a reasonably close game. The Jazz are still heavy favorites to win this series. But there's so many question marks that are still there and probably will just be there until the Jazz win a championship or lose against whoever they lose against. It's that push and pull within the playoffs. What adjustments can you make? What adjustments can you not make? It's what makes this defensive question for the Jazz so hard because the Jazz have to play defense in a very rigid manner. They don't have a lot of adjustments they can throw at an opposing team. The defense is built around Rudy Gobert. It's built around him being able to play drop coverage and defend in the key. And it's built upon perimeter defense that if you look at each individual defender, it's really not that good. They just don't have people who are that good at playing defense. Conley, Mitchell, Joe Ingles, Jordan Clarkson, Boyan Bogdanovich, uh, Joe Ingles. Go down the list of everybody there. George Ying. You would never, ever look at any of those people and say, these are good defenders. The one who comes the closest is Royce O'Neal. And even him you would never look at and say, Royce, I need you to go and shut somebody down. This is one of the flaws that we noted about the Jazz defensively coming into the playoffs. And it's one that we're seeing somewhat against Morant and Brooks, but it's one that I think we're really, really going to see is more pronounced when they're playing, if they're playing against Luka Doncic or Kawhi Leonard or Paul George or any of these other really high, high level stars moving forward in the playoffs. So these are my observations through three games. Um, Like I said, game four will be tonight in Memphis. And I'm sure I will be coming back to the same things I'm talking about today. How are Mitchell and Conley doing as an offensive combination? How are the Jazz shooting from three-point land? And most importantly, in my opinion, what do the Jazz look like defensively tonight? So we'll all watch that tonight. I will be back here on this show tomorrow to share more of my observations with you. And until then, enjoy your day. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. 
If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.